I need new outdoor pants. Manufacturing Descent since 1996. This is hell. Bernie Sanders never had a chance. Yep, we're talking Bernie today. We also have some breaking news and some leftover business that we have to attend to. Leftover business from last week. But first, the breaking news. In fact, this news is totally broken. We have finally heard at very very long last from our guardian and protector of the conspiracy corner Elvis Dumaro the last time we had heard from Elvis he had found himself in a Southeast Asian prison I'd emailed old addresses and had not gotten a response for a few years word was he had been released this morning I got an email from Elvis reconnecting with us using different contact information and it included this perfectly conspiracy corner sentence. Elvis writes, Paranoia will soon be the global influencer trend at this rate. So expect the return of the conspiracy corner in the very, very near future. And now that uh, list, that leftover business from last week, last week's question from hell. But what about the landlords? But what about the landlords? The person with our favorite answer to last week's question from hell wins 10 This Is Hell subvertising stickers so you too can subvert outdoor advertising with the words This Is Hell as we are all living in hell right now. What better time to remind others that yes, this is hell. You can leave your answer to last week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio or you can tweet it to us at thisishellradio or you can email us, chuck at thisishell.com or Alex at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of today's show as we will be announcing this week's winner later today. That's after today's guest. Alex, please, for God's sake, read more of the answers to last week's question from Al. Yeah, and no, I just want to say that Elvis email at uh, 3.21 a.m. Uh, really uh, made my morning, which I was already up at 3.21 a.m. after a bout of night terrors. And I was uh, really glad to hear from Elvis. So. Did, we, did you check uh, what time it was in Laos? No, is I think it'd be in the states. I mean, they go. I don't know, dude. Write emails from a Laotian prison. <laughs> Maybe at a halfway house. I don't know. I'm not really up on the Laotian prison system, so I don't know. What uh, about the landlords? <laughs> but what about the landlords? Is this question from hell? Rob H says. But what about Raven? <laughs> I don't understand that one. I don't get it either. Benjamin C posted a link to the Dead Kennedy song. Let's lynch landlords. I love that song. Mitchell C writes the landlords who have followed their HUD's advice to spend at most 30% of their income on housing will be fine. For everyone else, there's Realtor.com. Joe K says, all landlords are parasites in the same way that all cops are bastards. By being a landlord, you have knowingly placed yourself in a position to exploit people less fortunate than yourself. It's just more theft with rules, extracting wealth from your community without contributing anything in return. You could be a good person and a landlord, but you are good in spite of and outside of being a landlord. 
thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> but what like about how, the landlord? I loved how that ended. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. But what about the landlords? Adam A says, well, according to Discogs.com, there are about nine different bands named the landlords. <laughs> so which one are you talking about? Trevor M says, look, you can ask as much as you want. I'm not telling you where the bodies are. Isa R says, what about the landlords? I don't know. What about them? Damn, putting me on the spot. <laughs> what about the landlords? But what about the landlords? Nick A says, they get the wall. Not just one wall, but four walls with a roof over their heads and universal health care. We'll take care of those extra properties and put them in good hands, those who don't have homes. Al B says, seems about right for them to truly become one with the land, if you catch my meaning. <laughs> I mean, like that one? Uh, who Lad said that? Uh, that was Al B. Okay. Ladio says, mustache twirling ad infinitum. <laughs> Mark R says, what about guillotines? Fergus Z says, look under appetizers. <laughs> Andrew P says, let them eat cake. But what about the landlords? But what about the landlords? Clarence S says, Elizabeth Warren has a plan for them. <laughs> Greg B says, let them eat cake. Aaron D says, they get to explain to the banks that they can't pay their mortgage because their tenants didn't pay rent this month. All perfectly legal. Gorilla G says, let them eat Bitcoin. I do like that. And Warren L says, they can't get the unemployment website to work either. Alex will have more of your... <laughs> Who said that? Uh, that was Warren L. Warren. Unemployment website. All right. Uh, so uh, Alex will have more of your answers to last week's question from hell following our guest. Again, email us your answer to chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com or post them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio or DM it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. By the end of today's live stream, and Alex, please have Pavlos Rufos's Twitter response to our question from hell ready because I know that that was one of my favorites, but I... Couldn't find it online this week, so I want you to share that again with our listeners later on. On today's show, first, a trigger warning. If you are a supporter of Bernie Sanders, if you already or were planning on voting for Sanders in the Democratic presidential primary, if you truly believe that Bernie Sanders was going to be the next president of the United States, you actually thought that was possible in the United States of America, if his campaign motivated you to become an activist, making you enthusiastic about democracy and the possibilities the futures could hold, the future could hold of, you know, ending student debt and making in-state college tuition free while instituting universal health care and a Green New Deal that would mitigate the worst aspects of climate change. If that describes you, you may want to remember that the name of our show is This is hell and today it may, may be hell for you as we're going to look back at the suspended sanders for president campaign and ask some uncomfortable questions that reveal the harsh reality of not only the democratic party but also u.s democracy in general and specifically the shortcomings of sanders himself we'll have an eulogy possibly a post-mortem maybe an autopsy i'm hoping it doesn't turn into a vivisection of the 2020 bernie sanders for president campaign in a few minutes when we have the return of black agenda reports danny haifong who wrote the article bernie sanders exit from the is not betrayal. It's a reality check. You might remember Danny being on our show last May to talk about a book he co-authored with Roberto Servant called American Exceptionalism and American Innocence. You can find Danny's writing at blackagendareport.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, first, what'd you do this weekend? Uh, ate six pretzels that I made. Oh, really? Yeah. 
I love making pretzels. They're really fun to make. And mm. I and I uh, have this amazing mustard at my house that goes great on, must- on pretzels. Now I'm really jealous, and I want to make pretzels. Uh, you want to come over and make pretzels? <laughs> no, I do not want to come over There's to your no, house. nowhere in my house that I can be more than six feet away from somebody. <laughs> I was like uh, that uh, night terrors drinking seven cups of coffee before I came to the show. Well. I'm doing great. <laughs> Sounds fantastic. Uh, really good, actually. I, I, I don't know how long this is going to last, but I'm really enjoying sheltering in place with my girlfriend. I hope this lasts. It keeps being as happy and fun as it has been so far. We'll see, though. I don't know. Brave enough to be streaming live. Dumb enough to be goofy. Stupid enough to think we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is how. And Alex has this week's hangover cure. Uh, is I going to get Danny on the line uh, right now? Uh, okay. This week's hangover cure is the Sonoran hot dog. In an article headline, these 10 regional foods could be the hangover cures you need, which has already given us the hangover cures of the disgusting Cincinnati chili, the even more loathsome garbage plate, but what also promises to be the delicious Louisville hot brown this week offers the Sonoran hot dog. Writer Kaylani reports at the USA Today's 10 best site. These aren't just any hot dogs. The Sonoran hot dog is a signature street food of Tucson, Arizona. America's first UNESCO creative city of gastronomy. <laughs> really? Not good for them. The Sonoran hot dog is bacon-wrapped hot dog stuffed in a bolillo roll. Apologies for the pronunciation of that one. Topped with pinto beans and a variety of condiments ranging from onions and jalapenos to mustard and mayonnaise. It's the perfect handheld dish for anyone who needs to deal with a hangover on the go. So that makes this week's hangover cure the Sonoran hot dog. Have you ever had that uh, Mexican uh, bacon-wrapped hot dog before, Alex? No, I get that really disgusting hot dog sandwich at El Corito, though. Uh, and when you're having a tough time in your life, uh, that hot dog's going to save your life. It's pretty good. What What's their dish? Um, it's like this, but with seven more things on a sandwich. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> Damn, I, I, I miss it. I bet. I really want to try that. I was going to do that with a sausage this weekend, but I was having a chili dog, and so I was talked out of having chili on a bacon-wrapped hot dog. The future ain't what it used to be. This is how yesterday British Prime Minister Boris Johnson gave thanks to the healthcare workers who helped him while in hospital suffering from novel coronavirus 2019. And by the way, I've been hearing more and more radio announcers calling it the novel coronavirus, so it wasn't just me, thank God. The seemingly self-made video shows Boris Johnson repeatedly thanking the National Health Service, their universal healthcare program, and echoing the nation's pride for the NHS over and over and over again in doing a if doing a shot every time Boris says NHS was a game you'd be unconscious before his speech finishes that's how often he says NHS how do I know this because they showed most if not all of the speech on Fox News Channel yes on Fox News they showed a conservative leader who was an ally of President Trump speak reverentially about a socialist healthcare system that prior to the pandemic was in danger of being taken over by a U.S.-like privatized healthcare system. At least that was Trump's and his administration's fantasy, ruining British healthcare like we ruined ours, all in the name of putting profits before people's actual lives. To recap, a British prime minister who, like Trump, originally downplayed the seriousness of the virus, leading to a slow public and governmental response to the pandemic that caused the unnecessary deaths of many people. The prime minister ends up catching the coronavirus, gets so bad that he has to be hospitalized and eventually lands in the ICU, but recovers and comes out a stark, raving fan 
of socialist health care. Keep that in mind because that's not the way the story is being reported in the U.S. CBS Evening News American exceptionalism gatekeeper Elizabeth Palmer had her own spin on Boris Johnson's speech where he repeatedly mentioned, thanked, and praised the National Health Service. Palmer started with, there's lots of concern this week with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson admitting being admitted into intensive care with the coronavirus. I don't know if I would call it concern, Elizabeth, as much as schadenfreude. I'm not sure how much people were worried, disturbed, anxious, troubled, bothered, dis- perturbed by... Johnson's hospitalization as much as their thoughts were in the serves him right category for dismissing the threat of what turned out to be a global pandemic that has killed more than 10,000 Britons and 115,000 people worldwide. So he goes on and on and on about the NHS, except Elizabeth Palmer leaves out three letters from her reporting, those three letters being N, H, and S. For whatever reason, CBS and Palmer decided not to mention those three letters. Johnson repeats ad nauseum during his thanks to those who saved his life. Palmer then interviews another COVID patient who was treated at the same hospital as the prime minister without noting that with socialized medicine, a citizen can actually be treated at the same hospital as the leader of their government. When interviewing the other patient, he tells uh, Palmer through tears that now that he has survived and has been sent home, he cannot believe what he is seeing with people not social distancing and, quote, not taking this seriously, which Palmer reports without any irony of how Johnson did not take the virus seriously, just like the people who still refuse to shelter in place. CBS Evening News and Elizabeth Palmer intentionally erased from the story the role socialized medicine played in Johnson's survival and the other patients still being alive, while also omitting Johnson's history of taking the virus far too lightly. This has been commonplace in U.S. TV news media's coverage of the global pandemic. Past actions are being forgotten, world leaders are not being held accountable, and any discussion of whether the U.S. would have had a better response and would not be leading the world in deaths from the virus if we had a universal health care system. We could have had that debate, that is if there were any more debates between those who want universal health care and those who don't. With Joe Biden refusing to have any more debates and Bernie Sanders now dropping out of the presidential race, we are not going to have that debate as both Biden and Trump believe in the private health care system we have. The system that has failed all of us, has left the U.S. the world's leader in pandemic deaths. The media is not going to have that debate. Not with so much of their ad time during news broadcasts paid for by the pharmaceutical and healthcare companies that lobby against ideas like Medicare for All. Our government leaders are not going to have that debate and undermine their party's access to all those campaign contributions from Big Pharma and healthcare, including insurers. Do you see how much those stocks went up when Biden beat Bernie in South Carolina? They weren't only relieved that Bernie and his Medicare for All lost. They were jubilant. Dare I say giddy at the fact that Joe beat that freaking commie and their profits at the costs of people's lives had been secured. What we are all learning now, at least those who are open to learning some new tricks, is that capitalism, the market, does not do well in times of disaster. Capitalism, by its very nature, seeks out short-term profits that it can cash in on as soon as possible, which means things like price gouging, if necessary. When demand goes up, so does the price, even if that demand is one of life or death. Capitalism wants to get that last buck out of all of us right before we die. Ever notice how expensive elderly care and nursing homes are? If capitalism could, it would charge you for dying, and it actually does when it comes to funerals. 
Unless you're planning on doing what I am going to be doing, what my mother suggested we do with her body when she died, which is put it in a bag and put it out on the curb for the garbage men to pick up. But that's formal capitalism that fails us. Meanwhile, informal capitalism keeps providing for me and mine. Last week, I told you how the government, federal, state, and local officials had failed to provide me with a medical face mask that I should be wearing during the pandemic. I also mentioned how I can't wear a face mask because it fogs up my glasses, making it so I can't see as I cross a far too busy, still far too busy, Devon Avenue. I fixed that problem with a folded up tissue under my mask on the bridge of my nose. You can also use a flat twist tie to pinch the mask in place on your nose. But every level of government has failed to provide me with a face mask. Even the market has failed as I ordered some online weeks ago and they still have not arrived despite promises from the online seller that they were to arrive 10 days ago. But the informal economy stepped up as the person who I was buying weed from a couple weeks ago supplied me with a face mask, which was incredibly kind. Then this weekend, another person in the trade provided me with hand sanitizer. Again, something the market cannot provide me. The government cannot provide me, but my dealer can. So I want to thank the illegal marijuana market for providing me with what I need in this time of crisis. And to show my support for the industry, I want to point you all to an article in the New York Times from last Friday headlined, Staying Safe While Delivering Weed in the Pandemic, because we all need you to stay happy, healthy, and safe at this time of dire need. And when you consider the fact that the market cannot provide PPE, the government cannot provide PPE, but the completely unregulated illegal drug market can, you cannot help but be reminded Yes, this is hell. Coming up, Bernie Sanders never had a chance, no matter how hard he could have gone after Joe, no matter how hard his activists worked. Nope, Bernie never had a chance. We'll also have Rotten History, what's happening on the rest of this week's shows, and we'll tell you what the, who the winner is of this week's question from hell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio, so clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Bernie Sanders suspended his campaign for president last week in the Sanders wing, as our guest calls it in his writing, has been trying to figure out what happened and what's next, or at least they that's what Bernie Sanders supporters should be. Well, if they aren't, we are, and we're going to do that right now with Black Agenda Report's Danny Haifong, who wrote the article, Bernie Sanders' Exit from the Race is Not Betrayal, It's a Reality Check. Welcome back to This is Hell, Danny. Hey, I appreciate you having me. It was I had such we had such a great conversation the last time you were on back in May to talk about the book that you co-wrote with Rivero Servant, which is American Exceptionalism and American Innocent: A People's History of Fake News from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. And you can find all of Danny's writing at Black Agenda Report. That was one of our uh, most downloaded interviews of all of last year. So, Danny, I want to thank you for and all the people who downloaded it. Thank you for doing so. Uh, Danny, you start your article by writing Bernie Sanders' campaign galvanized millions around a social democratic program of universal health care, free public higher education, a Green New Deal, and other important economic and social policies. While I always viewed his candidacy, you write, while I always viewed his, can viewed his candidacy as possessing extreme limitations, a strategic choice was made to criticize Bernie Sanders only for making tragic missteps that impact the lives of millions of workers. For example, calling Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro, a tyrant, while devoting extensive coverage of the DNC's war to stifle and destroy his popular campaign at every turn. 
Is Danny just more generally? Is there an overall media tendency to place too much focus on a single factor for anything happening? And if so, why does the media tend to boil things down to one reason more than any other? There is a concerted effort to distort our understanding of uh, political developments generally, of how history is made and what kind of forces are playing upon history uh, to make things like Bernie Sanders suspending his campaign um, a reality. And so uh, what I try to talk about in the article is how even among Bernie Sanders's followers, uh, there was an element of leadership or um, an element of misleadership that was always involved in terms of uh, taking a very popular campaign where policies like Medicare for All and a Green New Deal are polling in majorities and taking that into what is effectively a graveyard for social movements in the Democratic Party. And that was always a limitation from the very beginning. Um, and so uh, leftists and radical leftists, revolutionaries, people who Um, never saw the Democratic Party as anything but a war party and a corporate party had a decision to make. And that was how do we effectively intervene in this period where there are millions of people who are hoping to win a so-called insurgent campaign within a political apparatus and a state apparatus, which is wholly hostile to their interests and everything that they represent. And um, on the one hand, uh, we had Bernie Sanders Um, remaining his imperialist self and um, while on the one hand maybe moving to the left on certain issues like Bolivia but on the other hand continuing to demonize Venezuela um, he also uh, remained very loyal to the Democratic Party and uh, there was no real effort on the part of the Sanders campaign to challenge the Democratic Party at the point of power and that is what I think is the real lesson here and what the corporate media will never talk about is how uh, because of the Democratic Party's relationship with the corporate media and because of just the intertwined character of power at the top, the capitalist class as a whole, uh, as we saw when he suspended his campaign, uh, the stock market ended up having a... a big rise because uh, the healthcare industry, the big monopolies in the healthcare industry on the insurance and pharmaceutical side, uh, just were very pleased that Medicare for all would not be a possibility in the 2020 election. So why did the media and therefore public debate and discussion, why did it focus on the role the Democratic National Committee played in derailing the Sanders campaign? Because that doesn't seem to be, that's clearly not the only thing that stopped the Sanders campaign. So why focus on only his relationship with the DNC and the uh, apparent uh, you know, kind of confrontation between the two? Yeah, well, I, I think that there was, You know, a few things. And in terms of the media, you had a corporate media which was completely hostile to Bernie Sanders uh, for the longest time during the 2020 primary, wouldn't even cover his campaign, uh, minimized his campaign as uh, something that wasn't even an issue, um, and tried to highlight every single opponent of his in an attempt to search for the best possible candidate for the corporate class and the capitalist class. And on the other hand, you had a progressive media which um, 
would try to carry the water for Bernie Sanders in terms of challenging the Democratic Party establishment and highlighting the DNC's role in undermining his campaign, but didn't really offer an analysis of how that speaks to a much larger issue of the election system in general, the Democratic Party primary process, and maybe, just maybe, uh, this effort to try to win within the Democratic Party is actually uh, maybe more trouble than it is uh, doing any good in the sense that uh, there won't be a victory for progressive forces within the Democratic Party um, anytime soon, if ever. And this is a stark fact that I think a lot, even in the press, uh, a lot of people, even the progressive media have not been willing to come to terms with. And that is, what is the essential character of the Democratic Party? What is the uh, actual uh, role of the Democratic Party in this moment of crisis and in this moment of uh, late stage capitalism and imperialism and decline. And I would say it's to uh, completely suffocate and stifle and destroy any progressive movement, any leftist movement. But there still is this idealism and this hope that uh, some sort of New Deal politics can survive within it. And, and I think that Bernie Sanders's two failed efforts at trying to win the nomination just show that that's just not possible at this time, and it's not possible ever. We had a discussion earlier this year about the possibility that when Bernie Sanders was in the lead, when it came to delegates after two uh, caucuses, uh, we we had a conversation about the potential for Bernie Sanders possibly having the uh, plurality of the delegates going into the Milwaukee convention in July. Now it's going to be in August. And then having that uh, nomination taken away from him by the Democratic Party, and instead they put delegates, superdelegates, towards Joe Biden. When we had that conversation on our show, the point of the conversation was something that you just touched on, which is this whole electoral process that we have and how it's two private parties that select candidates with their own rules in a very undemocratic process. We had people online who told us that we shouldn't have had that conversation because it was a complete fiction that there would be a stolen convention in uh, Milwaukee. But the point of the conversation was to shed light on all of the undemocratic processes that happen when we are electing a president of the United States. So is it a mistake to discuss the possibility for a sto- of a stolen convention when we were trying to bring light to the fact of the the fact that we have this undemocratic process? No, it definitely was not a mistake. I mean, during that period too after Sanders's victory in Nevada, the Democratic Party itself, its own major donors, its superdelegates were discussing the possibility of a contested convention and in in effect, stealing the nomination from Bernie Sanders. That wasn't that long ago. And it speaks to uh, just how organized and entrenched corporate power is in the Democratic Party and just the electoral system in general in the United States. And so those who call it a mistake to point this out are really trying to protect, it seems, the civility, the image, the exceptional image of so-called American democracy and are less interested in the real power struggle and, uh, dare I say, class struggle that occurred over the course of this election cycle where every time Bernie Sanders's campaign as it played the fair and square game of electoral politics gained momentum because of its immense popularity, it was always pushed back twice, uh, twice as hard by 
a Democratic Party elite, an establishment, a Wall Street-owned uh, uh, party uh, in order to you know, maintain and reproduce the very issues in and just utter uh, disgraceful conditions that we're seeing in this time, especially as, as COVID-19 uh, continues to wreak havoc on the United States and the rest of the world. And you write that Sanders was friendly with the corporate media and refused to utter a substantive counteroffensive against his opponents. Bernie Sanders attempted to win fair and square, as you were just saying, within a rigged party apparatus and adopted bourgeois civility politics designed to destroy the very political trend that he represented. Why would Sanders intentionally destroy the very political trend that he represented? Was he simply unaware that what you call bourgeois civility politics were anathema to the political trend he represented? Or was he unaware that, in fact, he was representing a political trend? I think it's impossible to get into Bernie Sanders' head as an individual. However, there are some important, uh, there are some important aspects of what he represented, which signal a possibility that this was always going to happen, um, that social democracy and an attempt to kind of redeem and reform the uh, capitalist state apparatus, which is now at a stage of terminal decline, that any attempt to do that within the larger historical trend of social democracy usually leads to political opportunism especially when working class people are not in the lead. Uh, I talk about in the article how the situation is backwards in terms of historical reality. Uh, what usually occurs, especially in the course of history, but even in this particular context of the United States, is that the only time real change happens, and Bernie Sanders even said this, was that there must be a mass movement on the ground. However, an electoral campaign can't be what builds that mass movement by itself. There must be uh, working class people independently organizing, uh, challenging and disrupting production and the power of the capitalist class and demanding uh, real concessions independently of the political apparatus. Because as we've seen over the last several decades, uh, especially in terms of the labor movement, uh, collaboration with the capitalist state usually leads to capitulation and it leads to a backward trend for the working class in relation to our uh, living conditions. And so what I would say is that there was always inherent limitations to uh, just Bernie Sanders' uh, effort to redeem and reform the Democratic Party and turn it into a social democratic party and hoping that people like Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton and the like would change their ways so long as there was some sort of uh, plurality or some sort of uh, major presence of social democrats within the democratic party apparatus that this was never really a possibility uh, given how the democratic party is structured but also that in focusing energy in that uh, effort uh, what ultimately was inevitably going to happen was that uh, the social democratic uh, trend in the Democratic Party was going to be squashed and stifled and destroyed by the Democratic Party establishment. And the hope for myself, at least, was that uh, this uh, insurgent movement would be able to get to the point of direct confrontation with 
the Democratic Party establishment. And that probably was only going to happen at, let's say, uh, the Democratic uh, National Convention. However, because Bernie Sanders, as an individual and as a campaign, refused to make any sort of uh, confrontation with Joe Biden or any of his other opponents, for that matter, a point of contention and a real point of focus in the campaign, uh, he ended up really just uh, bending the knee very early in the 2020 election to the Democratic Party apparatus and the Democratic Party apparatus took full advantage. He didn't learn from Donald Trump and he didn't learn from even a Barack Obama who uh, was able to differentiate himself from the field in order to curry favor with folks who, in the case of Obama, he didn't have any interest of serving. But Bernie Sanders, on the other hand, had every interest to um, make that offensive a point in his campaign against the Democratic Party establishment in order to inspire even just his own base to continue the fight. And his suspension really puts a big dent in that. You know, I was wondering why he did play nice, why he did decide to play nice. And, uh, you know, I'm just speculating that maybe he had a fear, maybe his campaign had a fear of being vilified, uh, that that would be such a, you know, you're not playing fair, you're not being nice, you're you're being a, a horrible person in this campaign, and you're dividing the party right now. I was wondering if maybe that's the reason why, that he was so in fear of being vilified that he wanted to play nice and play fair and be as good a person as he can be. Do you think that that actually may have hurt his campaign by playing nice, by playing fair, by not being the dirty politician that other politicians were? Or do you think he would have just been losing in a different way? Well, it's difficult to say exactly what would have happened if he decided not to play fair and nice. Um, There is a reality that the Democratic Party is that anti-communist. It's that dedicated to uh, maintaining the entrenched power of the capitalist class. And so there is a legitimate fear on the part of someone like an individual uh, such as Bernie Sanders or even the rest of his campaign that they would be – repressed into irrelevancy should uh, should they have mounted a more advers- adversarial campaign. However, uh, there's also the other side of that dialectic where uh, if he were to have run a more adversarial campaign, the ruling class would have been forced to respond in kind and that could have in effect had a major impact on how the rest of the electorate viewed Bernie Sanders. And while Bernie Sanders may have been seen as more hateable and more unlikable to those who already didn't like him, like uh, a good segment of the Democratic Party electorate, which is about voting for a Democrat no matter who it is in order to get rid of Trump, uh, there is a possibility that especially among sort of the disaffected non-voting population as well as the younger uh, section of the Democratic Party, the younger and, and more working class section of the Democratic Party, that that, that that segment of the party would have been, or at least that segment of the electorate would have been motivated to get on his side and make it more difficult for the ruling class to just get rid of his campaign altogether out of fear that 
doing so would uh, bring them more into a state of irrelevance, especially on the side of public relations, which is a very important thing for uh, the capitalist state as a whole, but for the Democratic Party, especially in this time. I think one of the biggest mistakes that Bernie Sanders made in his campaign, which uh, should be talked about a lot more, is how he did make Donald Trump the focal point of his campaign. And that was always a mistake in a political primary where you're trying to win a nomination based on the differences that people perceive you as having versus the rest of the field. And just on that level alone, he put himself in a very difficult position when uh, he would always have to hearken back to how he is against Trump most of all and that he is for unity in the final analysis with the Democratic Party uh, that doesn't inspire many people and what it does is it only gives credence to his opponents who don't care if he is nice to them. They don't care if he is united with the Democratic Party. What they care about on the establishment side is destroying any semblance of hope that his politics and his policies will uh, rise within the Democratic Party now and into the future. Let's talk about hope for a second. You write the hope was that the conflict between the Democratic Party establishment and the Sanders wing of the party would reach a critical mass at July's convention and break the Democratic Party into pieces. But whose hope was that? Sanders, his supporters, and what you call the Sanders wing? Because we saw with the campaign of President Barack Obama, how so many people had displaced their hopes onto Obama, whether he actually shared those hopes or not. So is there any disconnect, do you think, between the hopes of Bernie Sanders and what you call the hopes of the Sanders wing? I think so. I, you know, I, I think in the in the Sanders wing, there are a lot of people who disagreed with Bernie Sanders on some of the decisions that his campaign made. I do think that Bernie Sanders' following is pretty diverse politically. It's just unfortunate that at the top, in terms of who is actually managing and running his campaign, uh, they tend to be the more careful and the more conciliatory uh, faction of his uh, campaign when the rest of the movement, or at least those at the grassroots, are more militant and we're hoping, I think, for that confrontation in order to move their agenda forward. And uh, I think a lot of people in the Sanders campaign, especially at the grassroots level, saw that the only hope for the Sanders movement and for the movement for Medicare for All and the rest of the policy agenda was for there to be a real debate in this country about those things and that you know, what Bernie Sanders has done as an individual, especially in the last few weeks, and what's pretty tragic about this, I think, on a lot of levels, is that um, as his campaign became more successful, his campaign actually became more conservative on the organizing side, that um, when the Democratic Party establishment began mobilizing its resources with the dropout of Klobuchar and Buttigieg, uh, with the endorsements from uh, so-called corporate centrists like uh, Beto O'Rourke from uh, mobilizing uh, South Carolina on Super Tuesday to be a real bulwark for Joe Biden, that all of those things went unchallenged. And um, the Ber Bernie Sanders' campaign didn't really take any lessons from that. They just kept uh, going on the same course. And that continued into the COVID-19 crisis where 
you know, Bernie Sanders and the rest of his uh, surrogates, his, uh, you know, allies within Congress, they went along with a multi-trillion dollar bailout. And so for uh, the big banks, uh, even though they had their uh, they had their misgivings about it, but that didn't matter at the end of the day. It went through without a major challenge, without a major public challenge. And that ultimately, I think all of these things together point to why Bernie Sanders decided to suspend his campaign. And, and the difference between what maybe people on the ground who supported Bernie Sanders really wanted versus what the campaign ultimately did. And that is a distinction and a conflict that has to be addressed and I think points to the need for uh, Sanders's folks to hopefully move outside of this Democratic Party apparatus, move, think about ways in which to mobilize at the grassroots level rather than think about how can we win seats in a state apparatus, which is not going to offer them unless there is a severe demand on the system as a whole. You write that Bernie Sanders' campaign places a spotlight on the limitations of social democratic movements, especially within the political framework of U.S. imperialism. To what extent do you think a social democratic movement is simply impossible to have any real power here in the United States? If a social democratic movement is, in fact, impossible, does that mean fascism is an inevitability in the U.S.? What I think uh, about social democracy, especially in this context, what Bernie Sanders is for plus years of attempting to institute it here in its own form, um, is that in terms of Bernie Sanders and this effort, you you can't really reform the Democratic Party. You can't reform the capitalist state at this stage that I think we have decades and decades of proof that the trend here is towards fascism, is a neoliberal corporate state, and a, a capitalist, a stage of capitalist development which is mired in crisis, and that all those conditions make it very difficult for social democratic movement to win seats in Washington. Now, I don't think social de- uh, democratic movements are worthless. I think that in, there needs to be independent organization first for those demands to really be heard. That It's not so much that social democracy is impossible. Um, in my final analysis, I think that the impossibility of social democracy in the United States can lead us toward a revolutionary situation that we need um, in order for working people to have uh, real power in the United States. But a social democratic movement within the Democratic Party is always set up to die. It's always set up to fail. And so any social democratic movement around any form of demands must have working class people in the lead. And working class people in the United States are the most... Are you still there, Danny? Danny? Oh, we lost. Cool. Oh, Danny, you still there? Yep. 
All right. I'm so, still here. I'm sorry. I thought we lost you there for a second. Uh, so one of the things that you write is that Sanders and his campaign failed to take the risks necessary to make demands on the state in a period when where working people are suffering more than ever demonstrates that the Democratic Party is a graveyard for social movements, as you were saying earlier, and Bernie Sanders is complicit in holding the gate to the graveyard open. Did So I, I keep seeing people post on social media that they feel betrayed by Bernie Sanders. Did Sanders purposely mislead his supporters into believing democracy in the U.S. is open to the ideas embraced by social democracy? Or does he believe that the U.S. can become a social democracy through the ballot box and that belief is simply misguided? Because I really don't get this idea of feeling betrayed by Bernie Sanders, because that would imply that anybody who says they are running for president of the United States and they don't get that nomination, then they've all betrayed every one of their movements because they misled them into believing they could be president of the United States. So I don't really understand this betrayal. Yes, I'm not too sure about it either. I do think that uh, because we live in the United States and it is sort of a cesspool for individualism and for these sort of bourgeois democrat so-called democratic values that the United States holds so dear I do think that there was an element of of his followers seeing in Bernie Sanders something more than even what Bernie Sanders was projecting in his campaign you know I, I don't think that especially in 2020 and even in 2016, I don't think Bernie Sanders, when he talked about a political revolution or in 2020, when he talked about, um, you know, uh, building a mass movement to make sure that demands for Medicare for all became a reality. I don't think that he ever was saying that he could be president or that he was ultimately trying to transform the Democratic Party into something different. I think his idea of transformation was always mere reform and that he was okay with uh, running a campaign that was conciliatory and fair and uh, ultimately respectful to the Democratic Party apparatus as it existed. And so the betrayal, I think, is just a product of just the hurt feelings that people feel about Bernie Sanders making this decision at this time. I think anxieties are on high. I think that stress is on high for very good reason because of what the capitalist state has shown. It's complete... uh, decrepit state in this time of the pandemic crisis. So I think people are just feeling very hurt by the fact that they have put a lot of their support and their hopes in an individual who was at the head of an electorally focused movement, which had a lot of support from working class people, but unfortunately didn't have them mobilized or organized to make demands independent of the state. And I think that's where the movement must focus on now. It must focus on making sure that uh, if there is ever a time where demands can be made on the Democratic Party, that it's because working class people are on the move and are making demands that can be backed up by 
direct disruption and action at the point of power and production. I think that's where we need to go next. Yeah, but at the starting of the Obama administration, uh, I can't remember who it was. I think it might have been uh, William Lind. I can't remember who our guest was. But uh, we were having a discussion about how there were many within the Democratic Party who were telling the left, as as soon as uh, Barack Obama became president of the United States, to not put too many demands on him, to not push him too far to the left, because if you push him too far to the left, we're going to end up with a Jimmy Carter, uh, where we're going to have a, a one-term president, because he was Carter was pushed too far to the left, which is a complete fiction and a myth. Uh, but uh, he was pushed too far to the left, and the same thing is going to happen with Barack Obama, and I am betting that if Joe Biden becomes president of the United States, the Democratic Party is going to come out and say, do not push him too far to the left or else you're going to make him into a one-term president and then we're going to have somebody worse than Trump. So are we? is the Democratic Party going to allow the left to be able to put any pressure on them whatsoever? I don't think so, but that's the lesson that must be learned. You know, we can know that in our heart of hearts and in our minds, but if working class people are not on the move to be able to learn that lesson in a mass way, then um, ultimately the Democratic Party will be able to uh, will be able to forward that message to people and bash it into the minds of the uh, working class without any challenge. And so I think the point uh, what people like Lenin and other revolutionaries have talked about for a long time is that the point of engaging in electoral politics or engaging in any form of struggle with the working class is to make sure that these lessons are able to be learned and engaged with. And the only way we can do that is through organization, um, independent, though, of the state apparatus, because uh, once we have a taste of the Democratic Party, and I think this has to be discussed in the Sanders uh, phenomenon, too, is that once you have a taste of the state apparatus of power, and once uh, you end up in that structure uh, without the mass organization on the ground, uh, that structure swallows you. And that's because uh, this is about power. And the capitalists right now have all of the power. Of, if we just look at this pandemic response, it's the interests of the capitalist class and the fundamental contradictions of capitalism here in the United States, which have decimated so many people and so many working people um, uh, disproportionately. So if we can take any lessons from this crisis, from Bernie Sanders dropping out, it's that uh, the fundamental relations of power must be shifted and uh, we are not going to be able to do that within the democratic party we're not going to be able to do that with a party like the democratic party which is a war party and a corporate party that is so committed to propping up someone like joe biden and anyone else who uh, is like joe biden to lead a country which the two primary objectives right now are austerity and war. Even in a time of the like this during the pandemic, that continues. That trend, the and all the interests that that trend serves. That's the principal objective, or the principal objectives of this system. And until people are mobilized on the ground and organized on the ground to challenge that, the hard uh, work of doing that until that is done. 
uh, we're going to be uh, seeing this uh, trend continue into the future. Can that social democratic transformation happen through the ballot box? I don't think it can happen through the ballot box, not in this country. Uh, it doesn't mean, though, that, uh, for example, there can't be attempts to challenge the complete and utter rigged uh, conditions of the election system. Um, however, what I think must happen first is that working class people have to be organized in their workplaces. They have to be organized in a mass way. The unemployed right now, the massive numbers of unemployed people must be organized. Prisoners must be organized. I think at the point of where exploitation and these relations of power are so uh, severe that there is this opportunity with uh, these demands for health care, universal health care, for Green New Deal, et cetera, um, becoming sort of enveloped in the consciousness of people generally in the United States, that there is this opportunity to begin that process. It's not going to happen quickly. Um, but then again, crises like this one that we're in right now, and there will be more crises in the future, uh, tend to happen unpredictably under this system. And so uh, that work must be done now so that uh, we can be prepared for the next one in a much uh, more effective way. But in terms of the ballot box alone, which is unfortunately where a lot of the left has spent its time, I don't think that uh, this social transformation, that this social democratic movement can survive within it if that's the only effort. What we've seen from you know the squad and Bernie Sanders is that, sure, you can have millions of people behind you, but if those millions of people aren't ready to make demands and aren't ready to literally shut down the system as it works uh, presently, then, you know, really all you can do is virtue signal and talk about what you're for and what you're opposed uh, against. But that doesn't lead to any material change. We haven't seen any policy change in the United States since uh, Bernie Sanders came onto the scene in 2016. We've seen a change in consciousness and he should be credited with that along with the millions of supporters that he has. Uh, but that change in consciousness now must move into organization and that organization can't be restricted to the Democratic Party because we've seen now twice what that does. And even in terms of the squad, we see how precarious uh, their situation is, as well as the opportunism that comes along with being in the Democratic Party and not being accountable to anybody. We haven't seen much of a challenge to the uh, corporate power structure from anyone in the squad that really makes any difference in the lives of ordinary people. And so that um, should be a key lesson that we take away from all of this. We have been speaking with Black Agenda Report's Danny Haifong, who wrote the article, Bernie Sanders' Exit from the Race is Not Betrayal. It's a reality check. You can find all of Danny's writing at blackagendareport.com. He was on our show last May to discuss a book he co-authored with Roberto Servant, American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, A People's History of Fake News from Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. You can hear that interview by going to thisishell.com and searching on Danny's name, H-A-I-P-H-O-N-G. One last question for you, Danny, and as we do with all of our guests and as we did with you back in May, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response, and boy, are they going to hate your response to this question, Danny. You write Black Agenda Reports 
late co-founder and managing editor, the late, great Bruce Dixon, called Bernie Sanders a sheepdog for the Democratic Party. He wasn't wrong. According to Urban Dictionary, a sheepdog, Danny is a certain special person who watches over the rest of the people. The rest are called sheep. Sheepdogs prevent the wolves or bad people or things from hurting the sheep. Sheepdogs understand violence is sometimes necessary in order to protect the sheep. The sheep really don't like the sheepdog. Sheep prefer to go along their merry way, oblivious to the perils of life. Sheep tolerate sheepdogs' existence in order to keep the wolves away. So, Danny, and so everybody will get really mad at you. How is Bernie Sanders a sheepdog? Well, I think what Bernie Sanders has done and one of the main criticisms that should be discussed uh, and debated is how by really rallying so many people into the Democratic Party who uh, otherwise may question their allegiance to the party. Uh, by doing so, he's really herded them back into the safety and of the confines of this party apparatus that objectively in the final analysis, whether Bernie Sanders intentionally meant to do that or not, uh, and whether his movement intentionally did that or not, which um, I think uh, both claims uh, could be uh, rendered absurd in a lot of ways. However, in the final analysis, objectively, what ended up happening was uh, because Bernie Sanders ran within the Democratic Party, because despite overtures in 2016 to the, from the Green Party for him to run on the Green Party ticket, uh, despite many people in the Sanders camp wanting him to break away from the Democratic Party um, in key moments, that he refused to do so. And uh, similar to like a Tulsi Gabbard who said, I would never run for a third party. Bernie Sanders represents a very similar trend in that at the final analysis, the respect for the Democratic Party, a respectability politics, a politics of civility, uh, ultimately takes the day. And uh, that means that Bernie Sanders as a person and as an individual uh, seemingly put his career in the Democratic Party ahead of the movement. And so when we have leaders like that, leaders who tend to be mainly genuine uh, in terms of what they believe in and what they're fighting for, but yet have these limitations and contradictions that herd people back into the Democratic Party, uh, this must be discussed and it must be called out and condemned because uh, by not doing so, uh, we, t we run the risk of uh, g making the same mistake again and again and again. Danny, it's always a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for being on this week. Again, you can hear our interview with Danny from last May at our website, thisishell.com, and check out his book, American Exceptionalism and American Innocence. You can find all of Danny's writing at blackagendareport.com. Thanks so much for being on the show this week, Danny. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything, the value of nothing, this is hell. Alex, do we want to do the question from hell, or do you want to push it off till tomorrow? We can announce the winner if we'd like. Uh, sorry, I had to hit the button. Uh, we can either do that or Rotten. We've got time. We'll do Rotten History now and then push that off till tomorrow. Quest for Mel? Yeah, I guess. Does that work Does that work for you? Yeah, that's fine for me. All right. So last week's... I'm going to be a lady either way. But I know. It's not a big deal. Let's do Rotten History now. Uh, last week's Quest for Mel is, but what about the landlords? But what about the landlords? And we will be announcing the winner at the beginning of tomorrow's show, Tuesday's show. You can still leave your answer to last week's Quest from Hell at our Facebook page, on Twitter, at This Is Hell Radio. You can email it to us, whatever. 
We'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show. We'll announce the winner as well. The winner gets 10 This Is Hell subvertising stickers, so you can remind everybody But that, yes, this is hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. On April 13th, 1919, 101 years ago today, Monday, at the city of Amritsar, Amritsar, sorry, Amritsar, in the province of Punjab, in British-ruled India, crowds of pilgrims came from surrounding towns and villages to celebrate the festival of Vaisakhi at the Golden Temple, the most important holy site in the Sikh religion. And if you're familiar with rotten history, nothing good ever happens when crowds gather. After months of uprisings and demonstrations in Punjab and elsewhere, Colonel Reginald Dyer, the chief British military officer in the area, had just issued a prohibition against large assemblies. Also, if the British Empire is involved in rotten history, you know it's about to get ugly. But the ban on large assemblies was poorly publicized, and most of the 10,000 pilgrims who gathered in a large garden near the Golden Temple were unaware of it. And miscommunication. Crowds The British Empire and miscommunication are your basic ingredients to rotten history. They were there to celebrate the religious festival and also to hear speakers protest the recent arrest of two local political leaders. The garden was surrounded by walls on all sides with only a few narrow exits. Being a religious festival and poor wayfaring, that is, foot traffic strategizing, this is about to get real rotten real fast. In the midst of this activity, Colonel Dyer entered the garden accompanied by 50 rifle-bearing troops, along with some other soldiers who blocked the garden exits. Without issuing any warning for the unarmed crowd to disperse, Dyer ordered his troops to open fire for almost 10 full minutes. The soldiers continuously mowed down hundreds of screaming men, women, and children as they tried in vain to escape from the walled garden. Yes, the British Empire outdoes itself in cruelty once again. In desperation, more than a hundred people climbed into an open well, only to drown. Others were trampled to death in stampedes around the narrow exits. The soldiers kept firing until their ammunition was gone, killing as many as many as 1,500 people. The British tried to suppress news of the massacre, and it took months for the outside world to learn about it because the British weren't the kill-and-tell types. After an inquiry, Colonel Dyer received a slap on the wrist. He was relieved of his India duty and denied a promotion. Some British politicians denounced his actions while others defended him. Must have been quite a defense. Dyer's soft treatment provoked the Nobel laureate Rabindranath Tagore to renounce his British knighthood, and it also caused the political leader, Mohandas Gandhi, to drop his demand for Indian home rule and instead push for full independence from Britain. 21 years later in 1940, an eyewitness to the Amritsar massacre wouldn't take revenge by assassinating the former British lieutenant governor of Punjab. And to this day, despite various wreath layings and carefully worded expressions of regret, the British have yet to offer a full formal apology. So in case anyone ever asks you, how did India gain its independence from the British Empire? Tell them that the Empire massacred some 1,500 unarmed men, women, and children leading to independence. Also remind them that England has never apologized because they're pricks. In Rotten History, April 17, 1912, 108 years ago this Friday at a jointly Russian and British-owned gold mine near the Lena River in Siberia, some 2,500 striking mine workers assembled to demand an end to 16-hour workdays, miserably low wages, and an unacceptably high rate of dangerous accidents. 
Also big in rotten history are mines and workers going on strikes. The workers were not only protesting their own conditions, they were also protesting the arrest of the members of their strike committee and demanding their release because nothing says labor negotiations like demanding, like arresting the strike committee. That seems like really good negotiations. The strikers quickly found themselves face to face with a unit of Imperial Russian troops who opened fire, killing some 270 of the workers and wounding another 250. News of the massacre spread quickly through Russia. It provoked thousands of strikes across the country and was one of the key events leading eventually to the Russian revolutions of 1917. The lesson from this week's Rotten History? Massacring civilians is not an effective long-term strategy when it comes to control of a population. Who knew? That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Alex, who's on tomorrow's Tuesdays live? This is Hell, streaming at 10 a.m. on thisishell.com, and then podcast by 2 p.m. Uh, tomorrow we got Debs Bruno and Medway Baker from Cosmonaut, the blog. I really recommend that site. And they're going to be talking about their piece, The End of the End of History, COVID-19 and 21st Century Fascism. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. I want to thank Danny Haifong for being our guest today. Thanks to Alex for producing. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for all of his work on Rotten History. And as always, special thanks to Theron Humiston for putting this whole studio together. Truly revolting radio, this is hell. Talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.